Hey everybody, it's me, Matt Tennant. And me, Niels Rose. He's a duck. And he's a cop. Thank you guys for streaming, downloading, or listening to this. Yes, thank you. You know, we just got done uh, actually with a reporter. That's what you call them, reporters, yeah. Journalist. Journalist. Yeah. Who was talking about a journal article. Yeah, our journal article. Our journal article. Yes. Which we haven't talked about yet. No, we should. So just out published now in the International Journal of Law and Psychiatry is about the CIT Echo. Yeah. Which if you guys listen to this podcast routinely, we normally always put a didactic or lecture from the CIT Echo actually at the end of this. Yes, we do. And so it was nice. We we had an article published and the leading author is Annette Grisanti. She's the principal investigator for this project when we had on a grant. Um, Jennifer Earhart, which some of you guys might know from previous episodes, and she's a project coordinator. Doc Rosenbaum here, Niels, myself, and then Dr. Daniel Duhigg. Yes. But give me a little breakdown about this, Niels. Give you a breakdown. Yeah. Okay, so it, it's about the project. It's about the innovation that we've come up with, the the collaboration. So I'll give a very quick background of what ECHO is if people don't know what it is. So ECHO. ECHO. <laughs> Good one. Echo, Echo. What is it? Extensions for... Oh, let's see if you know this. Extensions for care and healthcare outcomes. Isn't it extensions and community healthcare outcomes? Yes. I knew that. Yeah. It's testing. <laughs> so it's called... It's Project Echo. It's a medical model that's been around for a long time and very, very successful. To, and it's... Uh, they use Zoom, which is a uh, teleconferencing platform. Right. And what they do is they have a, a hub, a centralized group of experts, say, in infectious disease. And then you have somebody out in rural New Mexico who maybe only sees one or two cases of this illness in a, his career, let's say. Okay, yeah. And then they need to get advice. So instead of sending their patient up to Albuquerque, which could take a day, they they can staff the case with the experts and get feedback on their cases. Right. So it's mentoring. They mentor, mentor. The, the local providers. Exactly. So what what Project Echo has expanded to is our police model. So it's CIT Echo. And so what CIT Echo is, it uses Zoom and the same idea of having a hub of experts and spokes all out throughout the state and country and world. 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 Shout out to you, Amy Cook. In Canada. That's the Amy, world. I hope you're listening to this. <laughs> you make us international. <laughs> and so so the idea is we have psychiatrists. It's very unusual or almost non-existent other than here, I think, to have psychiatrists in a police department. Right. I think we're and the only one. I think we're the only one also. And so we are have a, an abundance of riches because we have uh, three, well, really two. Um, and so we have access to a lot of psychiatrists. So we meet once a week and we do this teleconferencing so that police officers all over the country can talk to each other, talk to mental health detectives who are experts in this field, right. uh, talk to other providers and talk to the psychiatrists. And as a large group with the hub of experts at the center, we come up with plans on how to help officers who come into contact with people living with mental illness. And, right. and the structure is first we give a, a, a brief talk from the the hub to all the people throughout the world. Uh, and it's an interactive talk. And then somebody on in the network um, presents a case. So they would it's basically a debriefing. Right. So I'm an officer, I'm in Canada, and there's some guy who was 
talking to himself and talking about aliens and yelling at everybody and I don't exactly know how to communicate with him. What can I do? And so the entire – this is a very simplified version. But then the entire group gives him feedback on uh, this is what people people living with psychosis may experience and these are questions you can ask. This is how you can approach them. Are there these kind of local resources? Do right, you have a right. hospital you can take them to, et cetera, et cetera? And that's Echo. And this article is going over the successes of – and also just explaining what it is. Really. Right. Because in the article, it talks about kind of like what you're saying. What is a hub? What is a spoke? What does the actual uh, case forms look like? Mm -hmm. You know, how you should document this stuff, what information you should collect if you want to research it to make sure it's uh, improving outcomes. Yeah. Which we'll have hopefully another article out about the outcomes. And yeah. just um, spoiler alert, it does improve outcomes. Yes. Surprise. <laughs> Amazing. But yes, you know, it's a great project. If in the show notes for this podcast, I'll put a link to the article in case you guys want to download it or use it. Um, and if you guys out there want to start your own type of uh, CIT Echo or something similar to that and want help, we'll help you guys for that. You know, it's a great thing. There's a lot of grants for that. You know, and if you are wanting to join this project that we have, it's for free. You guys can join it, get free. Yeah. Anybody out there who's law enforcement first responder or works alongside a first responder like a clinician yeah you're you're welcome to join yeah because we originally started this with kind of the mindset of it's only like law enforcement yeah and it really expanded like we have uh fire personnel i yeah. think that's kind of on the increase now is that more and more fire departments yeah. are wanting to do kind of mental health training and collaboration Absolutely. with police now yeah we get a lot of uh probation parole too yes they're but not considered it, law enforcement you know that's i'm you just Wonder. insulted somebody, I'm sure. I'm sure I did. But, you know, I was trying to look this up the other okay. day. One time we were trying to find definitions for okay. either this article or a grant. Okay. And they are not. They weren't considered law enforcement. In the, really? The definition. Because they're after. They don't enforce the law. Do we have to kick them out of the program? No. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying these are all people that, that join this. <laughs> I know. But it's not just your and we're, law we're, enforcement. And we're discussing expanding even more right. uh, to a second echo or expanding this one to pr add more providers and people in the community. Right. Um, so anyone that might have input tuned. into an yeah. uh, active crisis in the community. Yeah. It's really nice. It's nice to see us all, you know, get together, like truly collaborate. Them. Yeah. It's not so much of, of, unfortunately what I feel like a lot of CIT programs end up being is collaboration around training. Yes. So just people like, oh, the community is coming in to provide a class and not so much mm -hmm. of like, okay, after you get the training, what about what's actually happening in the community? Like, yeah. how do we fix that yeah. situation? And it's nice here. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and, and one of the things we were talking about earlier, we thought it was going to be more about approach. Uh -huh. Like, how do I approach someone that is talking to themselves all the time? I'm nervous. Yeah. And that's not really the cases. The cases are we more We thought systemic. it was going to be more of that. Yeah. yeah. They're more of like... This, Where you really need the collaboration. Yeah. yeah like absolutely. this person's in and out of this provider. Why is that? Yeah. And then it's nice having you guys like, well, we can't just keep someone against their will if it's substance use in this state because of X, Y, and Z. Like, oh, well, we didn't know that. And, and this is how yeah. this is, you know, we should look for this resource now. And some of the expertise or stuff that transcends sort of local stuff is, you know, make a case formulation. So – you don't even if you have resources, you don't know which resource to send them to until right. you have a better idea of of what this person is needing and wanting or presenting as. And so the group helps with, oh, this probably looks like bipolar. Have you considered that? And right. here's a, a phone number for resources and that That's kind of point. thing. 
No, I think it's been very successful and it is unique in the country. And I think it's something that um, we want to offer to as many people as possible. It's a great way to learn. It's free. Right. Uh, you don't have to travel. Um, and it, we get it's state accredited. Right. So um, you guys can get it in your if you are law enforcement listening or corrections or probation pro anyone that has a post standard or a, a accreditation center for your license. You guys can get this accredited in your state and or we can help you guys for that. Absolutely. One. Absolutely. I don't think that would be too difficult. Right. But again, this is coming out and this uh, it's out now. So it's the January, February 2019. Run to your store and pick it up. <laughs> yeah. It's the International Journal of Law and Psychiatry. You know, one of the, the strange things that happens is I'm not sure about uh, where would you actually find a journal? It's so foreign to me. Where would you find a journal? Online, usually. That's just how you find it? Yeah. They're expensive. Yeah, they're very expensive. But yes, you can check it out <laughs> online. It's in any of the journal publications. It's out now. Check your show notes for links to more information on that. Yes. And if you guys are interested in either creating this or joining this current project, you guys can send Jennifer Earhart an email. It's J-E-A-R-H-E-A-R-T at CABQ.gov. You guys can send me one at Matt at GoCIT.org. And I can get you guys linked up to the ongoing training, the, the listserv, all that kind of stuff. If people want to get a hold of you, Nails? Doc at GoCIT.org. Awesome. D-O-C. D-O-C, not Department of Corrections. No. <laughs> I guess that's true. I was just thinking about that. But anyway, again, Doc at GoCIT.org. Me at Matt at GoCIT.org. Stay tuned. We'll put on a didactic from the CIT Echo, which is what we're talking about. These uh, didactics are about a year behind, though. So if you guys want the most current one, please sign up and join our ongoing weekly meetings. Awesome. Great. Thank Bye, you. Guys. Bye. Okay. So um, now I'm going to introduce Niels. Thank you. For those that don't know, I'm Dr. Rosenbaum is the primary psychiatrist for Albuquerque Police Department. Um, we have done this presentation once before, I believe, um, and we haven't done it in about a year, um, so we wanted to repeat it, uh, change it up a little bit, revisit the issue. Share Dr. Rosenbaum's screen with you all. So that's it. So that's your intro. Get started. Very good. Okay. <laughs> so, so my name is Niels Rosen. I'm a psychiatrist. I've been working with the Albuquerque Police Department for about, uh, I guess, not more than 10 years. So the reason I have this picture is because she's one of many famous people who has stated that they have bipolar or obviously have had bipolar. Yeah, a lot more famous people have bipolar than uh, schizophrenia, which is a very debilitating psychotic illness. Uh, for many reasons, one being that people with bipolar can function when they're doing well, and people with schizophrenia are usually doing pretty poorly all the time. So it's also known as manic depression. This is just sort of get an overview so people know what we're talking about. It's basically very dramatic mood swings from very manic and talking all the time, and that's why I was asking about those questions. Uh, distractible, kind of all over the place. Uh, and then the other extreme can be sad, and a lot of people are also euthymic, so they're in the middle. They're neither up nor down, they're just okay. Uh, it's lifelong, and it's, um, it's most often diagnosed in adolescence. It's usually misdiagnosed or diagnosed first as depression, and then a mania comes on later. 
So I'm going to digress into sleep a little bit just because I think it's an interesting topic and it's one way to update this. So sleep is an extremely important thing that science really is just starting to discover more about in the last probably 10 to 15 years, where it used to be just a kind of a big black box. Um, so sleep, in terms of people with bipolar, this could be, I was taught that this is the most important or most common symptom. So if someone is manic, they're most likely not sleeping, and if someone has a history of bipolar and they're not sleeping, that's a really good indication that they're becoming manic or are already manic. So I always ask anybody with a history of bipolar, are you sleeping? And you have to ask a follow-up question. And I know it might be weird for cops to talk to someone like, how did you sleep last night? But I think it is actually an important safety question because they might say, oh, I slept great. Then you have to say, well, how many hours did you sleep? I slept two hours and that's all I need. I feel fantastic. So that's sort of the the standard bipolar thing. You have to ask that follow-up question because it's less sleep, less need for sleep. So studies show that 90 to 100% of people with mania also have a sleep reduction. And this is based on, like, they're admitted to the hospital and you look at them. Like, that guy's not sleeping. Okay. So it can lead to a wide range of medical and psychological problems, and we could talk about that at another lecture, all the many, many things that not getting enough sleep can do to you. But I will just give a quick overview. But before that, here's a guy named uh, Peter Tripp. He was a, a DJ, and this was back, I guess, in the 50s, where, you know, DJs were really important, and he... He did a. Um, he wanted to do a two hour, two hundred hour, uh, going without sleep to raise money for I think March of Dimes. So he started it, and they got more and more interested. And he's just stayed in Times Square, and then eventually scientists came and studied him. Um, so it's well documented. So he went without sleep, and after about a hundred hours of wakefulness, he was no longer able to get through the simple math problems or recite the alphabet properly. So he, he is obviously his mental capacity went down really badly. And then after about 120 hours, he began having hallucinations. So, for example, during this, he, he walked into a nearby hotel room he sh- to shower and change. And when he opened a chest of drawers for clothes, he saw flames shooting up out of the drawer. He believed scientists were conspiring against him and wanted to frame him for crimes. Uh, he also thought one of the scientists that was studying him was... Uh, an undertaker and was coming to bury him. So he had a lot of psychotic beliefs. And this is directly related to his lack of sleep. He's never had these kind of problems before. He was also, I think, on stimulants too, which didn't help. So another guy, Dan Lawson, and there, there are tons of these anecdotal cases. So this is a guy, ultra marathon. Was he okay after he got some sleep? He was better. He slept for 24 hours straight and then he did better. His life kind of fell apart afterwards. But yes, yeah, really? he, he recovered pretty quickly. So Dan Lawson, uh, he completed a 250-mile-hour course in a record of 71 hours. So the way these guys win, these ultra-marathons, is they don't sleep. So it's it's a combination of being in good shape and being able to go without sleep. So in this whole thing, he slept less than one hour. And I actually went on a, uh, you know, just did some Google searches, and there, for ultra-marathoners, there's like, chat rooms about how to overcome your hallucinations while you're running. And so this guy would see rock formations in the desert turning into faces. Uh, he believed that you know, there was an elephant and giraffes chasing him. And what's interesting, he said he knew it was all in his mind, but it was still scary. People with 
mental illnesses often don't realize it's all in their mind. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but more often than not, they don't. Okay, so for anybody, just one night of missleep can cause poor concentration, distractibility, poor judgment, mood changes, being overly emotional, and labile. They're I don't know, synonyms. Um, so it looks a lot like some of the sim. What's that? What's labile? Labile means overly emotional. So like you're up and you're down and you're crying and you're laughing, kind of like what the, this patient was describing. Does any before I keep just prattling on other questions as we go along? Just type them in or make yourself known because I don't want to talk over people. Um, so just one night of missleep can cause all these things, and they look a lot like part of the symptoms of bipolar, and they look a lot like uh, ADHD. And there's some evidence that some kids with obstructive sleep apnea mean they can't sleep well because their windpipe is not working the same way at night as it does for other people. Uh, end up looking like they have ADHD, and then they're put on Adderall, which helps them sleep even worse and then they get more distracted. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but it happens. The question from, yes. looks like Detective Tinney, who's supposed to be off work today, um, he says, can you actually train not to sleep, like the ultra events? You know, that's a good question that I don't really know the answer to, but I think the answer is probably a tiny bit. I mean, the, you could probably get used to anything. It's more just endurance. But if you have to sleep, you have to sleep. You, people have set points, and they just eventually you're going to fall asleep no matter what you're doing. Whether you're driving a car or anything, you're just going to sleep. And people take micro naps throughout the day. So if you were going without sleep, and there was a good study of surgeons, not to freak everybody out, but if you go to the hospital, surgeons are often on their 30, 40, 50th hour, and they might start a surgery in their 20th hour on. And so it's always good to ask, you know, have you been, did you sleep last night? Is the beginning of your shift because... The studies are all very clear that going a night without the sleep without sleep is the same as being legally drunk. So if your doctor walked in the room and took a swig of alcohol and was drunk, you would be like, "Yeah, sure. I'm not. I, I don't want to ask any questions because I feel awkward." You're going to find out. So I think it's fair to ask about surgeons. And the surgery mystique is, "Oh, we don't need sleep. We're very tough and manly and all that stuff." But when they do studies of them, they actually sleep sometimes even standing up with these little micro-naps. So their eyes half-close, they fall asleep, and then they wake up. And that happens to anybody who's sleep-deprived long enough, eventually have these kind of micro-naps. Is that you? Micro-nap your life away? Um, and just one last regression. One of the reasons, I don't know if you've heard this story, one of the reasons that residency is based on working as many hours as you possibly can in a row, because that's how get your training, and that's how we did it, is because the first guy who started it was, was an anesthesiologist. He was a big residency guy, at, I think, at Hopkins. And they used to use a lot of cocaine for anesthesia. And then he got hooked on cocaine. And then he wanted everybody to work the same hours as he did. So it's fantastic. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> cocaine. Okay, so why does sleep deprivation cause psychosis? No one's exactly sure. Um, so sleep is, is desperate. Sleep is desperate. Sleep is desperately needed, and uh, REM sleep can intrude on waking consciousness. This is one of the, the uh, hypotheses. So if you can't dream and you have to dream every day, you can't do it because you're not falling asleep, you're going to dream while you're awake. Um, and it's because dreaming is an absolutely essential component of your mind and your mind upkeep. So... 
So REM, this is rapid eye movement. And the reason it's called REM is because while you're asleep, your, your body, while you're in a rapid eye movement sleep, your body is asleep and paralyzed. So your body is paralyzed. Your brain is very active as if you're awake. And your eyes are the only muscles that really can move around. So you're looking all over inside your dream. You're looking at everything and you're acting it out in your mind. But if you weren't paralyzed, you'd act it out. In reality, you'd be walking around swinging it. So your body's paralyzed. Your eyes are rapidly moving. And this was kind of discovered by accident because someone was doing a, a sleep study, a pioneer doing a sleep study. And one of the things he checked was the eyes. And he went in the other room and he's sitting around. He's like, oh, the, the subject woke up. I mean, what a pain in the ass. So he walks back and notices, no, he's not awake. He's completely asleep. And he could see his eyes moving. And then he discovered rapid eye movement. So rapid eye movement sleep, uh, one of the uh, good description I heard of it was it sort of digests everything, all the information you get throughout the day. It sort of helps you digest it, make sense of it, make associations. You can even prepare and rehearse. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. You're, you're working really hard to learn a new skill. It could be a bodily skill, like a, I don't know, a self-defense move or something. You practice and practice, and then you finally get some sleep, and then you're better than when you left off because your mind practices at night while you're sleeping. So back to bipolar. Any questions about sleep? Because that's sort of the end of the sleep portion of this. Well, if you have one, just type it out. So this is just one of many studies that shows that people with bipolar likely have different brains or different brain function. So one of this, not that you can tell from looking at this, but there's hyperperfusion of the orbitofrontal areas, which is sort of the what we call executive function or the part that steps on the brakes when you're feeling impulsive and tells you that's probably not a good idea. That part is underperfused in people with bipolar, and you can see that that gets them into a lot of impulsive but dangerous situations. So uh, epidemiology, it's about 1% of the population, men and women equally, and that comes out to about 2 or 3 million Americans are diagnosed with bipolar, which is a lot. It's also popular diagnosis, and it's in popular culture. So over the last five to ten years, people are a lot more likely to want to be diagnosed bipolar than borderline personality disorder or schizophrenia. It's just a, it's a much more romantic uh, diagnosis, and it's the people who say that they don't have it are often the ones that actually have it. Um, so... I don't know if anybody's heard this song. It was very popular a while back, but it has some of the symptoms. I'm so happy. You know, I found God, so he's, he's uh, grandiose, shaved his head, so he's doing odd things. He's horny, so he's hypersexual. These are all symptoms of bipolar. So this is just word for word out of the DSM, and I think it's good to go over, and I actually typed it out, and I was like, oh, that's a good reminder. So it's a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated, expansive, irritable mood, and abnormally and persistently increased goal-directed activity or energy, lasting up to one week and present most of the day, nearly every day, or until hospitalization is needed. So that's a lot to unpack. So the first part is it's a distinct period. So it's not ADHD. It's not I have this all the time and I'm always disorganized and I'm always kind of flighty or borderline personality disorder where I'm always kind of mood up and down and everybody's mean to me, it, it comes and goes. It's distinct. It's different than how you are when you're depressed and it's different than how you are when your mood is okay. So your mood can be elevated, expansive, which is an interesting word, and it's a good one to ask for people who are bipolar. 
because they know what it, if you say, oh, are you feeling expansive? Often they're like, yes, that's the perfect word. Because it's a feeling of everything's wide open, everything's making sense, everything's coming together. It's a, it's a sort of glorious feeling. Like imagine standing in the open, you know, in front of a waterfall and like, oh, everything is perfect and it makes sense now. Or on a mountaintop, that's sort of that expansive feeling. Or irritable. And that's where it gets complicated because if you don't have a really good mood but you're really just irritable all the time, you can still qualify to be mad. Okay, and it has, to, it has to be persistent and abnormal, so it can't be your normal baseline. And then you also have to have these other things, increased goal-directed activity or, or energy. So like with the hoarder woman, she, she had to always be doing something, it sounds like, stacking her, her, her stuff or showing you this and then showing you that, a lot of energy. So that's another thing that one must have in order to get this diagnosis. And then there's always a time thing. It's got to last a week, so it can't be, gosh, I was so manic this morning, and now I feel okay. And we'll get that, too. I mean, people say, my bipolar's acting up. For the last couple of days, I've been really manic, and now I'm perfectly fine. Okay, that's great, but that's not bipolar. It's something, though. Okay. So then, after you have this as a baseline, like you have to have this, then you have to have three of the following seven. Or four if your mood is only irritable. Because if you're only irritable, then we throw in that you have to have four of these. So uh, grandiosity, uh, increased self-esteem. So I'm trying to see, like, with the, the case we had today, she may have had a decreased need for sleep. She may have been more talkative than usual. It seems like she had racing thoughts. A flight of ideas is like uh, you go from one thought to the next, to the next, to the next. It's like imagining your thoughts are, are, are a bird or a flock of birds, and they just kind of go all over the place, one spot to the next. And then increased goal-directed activity, so or psychomotor agitation, meaning like she can't sit still, she's doing this, she's doing that, and then risky behavior. So she definitely has risky behavior. She definitely has distractibility. Seems probably more talkative than usual. We don't know so much about her mood, so she's right on the cusp. And if you ask specifically about these, you might find, yeah, she's in fact married. And also that she also meets, meets this criteria from what little we know for the neighbors. She was okay, and now she's not okay anymore. It's different. It's a markedly different uh, behavior. Okay. Then there are qualifiers, which I will not go over very much. This just means, okay, you're bipolar, but what kind of bipolar are you? Are you anxious mostly? Or are you mixed, which we'll talk more about later? Are you uh, bipolar, meaning that you're manic and then depressed very quickly over, uh, over the course of a year? There's all sorts of different flavors of bipolar. And then I highlighted mood congruent or mood incongruent psychotic features because you don't have to be psychotic to be bipolar. So if you're bipolar and you're manic, often you're going to be psychotic because you're going to be so grandiose or so paranoid that you're also going to be psychotic. And you can have mood congruent, which, which is the most common. I'm, I'm the king of the world, and that's my delusion. I feel great, and I believe I'm the king of the world. So it's congruent with my mood. If my mood was super-duper wonderful and I'm the greatest person ever, but I believe people are trying to poison me, that might be mooting congruent. There are a lot of famous people through, the history, through our human history that have bipolar. It's persisted throughout our human history. This is Van Gogh. He was thought to have bipolar. And we don't know for sure about all of these, at least I don't. And this was uh, just a few of a much longer list. So Kurt Cobain, who wrote Lithium, Abraham Lincoln, some people think that he's bipolar, also Winston Churchill, Jack Nicholson, Jimi Hendrix. So these are people obviously who've done very, very well in their lives. And also, um, what's her name? Margot Kidder, 
not Margaret Kidder, who's the, who's, who's Princess Leia? Somebody. Oh, Carrie, uh, Fisher. Carrie, Carrie Fisher. Fisher. Yeah, she said that she has that. I have a question. Yes. So it's a lot of this list um, seems like it's like people involved in the arts, maybe. Mm -hmm. Is there a connection between bipolar disorder? The, there's arts? been, I think there's a connection. There's been research showing that there's a connection. Um, and why, I'm not exactly sure why there's a connection. But yes, there is. There's definitely a connection. And there's a famous book called Touch by Fire, written uh, to Jameson, I think is her name. It's a very good book. It's getting a little old now, but it was basically about that exact question. Why do people with bipolar more likely to be creative? Well, are people that are creative, isn't their left hemisphere more active? active. Could that have a bearing? No, I am not an expert on creativity. No, I mean, when you're comparing it to other psychiatric diagnoses, with bipolar disorder, you're talking about an affective group of symptoms. You're talking about depression and then this expansion of mood. Whereas people with schizophrenia or schizophrenia-like illnesses have a problem with cognition. There's much more dull, negative symptoms that are present. So I also don't, I don't think there's one single explanation as to why this is. But, but when people become manic, they are able to do some amazing, horribly horrifying things, but some amazing things as well. And they like that feeling. Um, and so it is, it's pretty remarkable, um, the number of artists and authors and musicians. Like Robin Williams. Yeah. Lived so, through. I mean, he tapped into the manic, he was almost manic when he would go on his comedic, uh, I mean, it's called comedy, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. repertoire. Yeah. No, I think also from what I've learned about art and artists is that, you know, the artist's job is to take the universal sufferings and struggles that all human beings have faced all through history and translate that into a language that people can understand in that time. So, you know, some artists are more timeless than others, but the, the artist's job is to take these, these universal struggles and make them approachable and beautiful for people. And it, if you don't have the full, full range of human experience, it's harder to be to tap into all that. So if you know what it's like to be on top of the world and feel the greatest thing ever, you know what it's like to be very, very depressed, it might give you a bigger breadth of things to sort of translate. I did have a question. Um, my eyes are going, but the, the list is crazy. Any chance of a, a misdiagnosis on some of these? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Like Abraham Lincoln may have been uh, more depression than bipolar, or he may have had mercury poisoning. Um, some of these people had problems with syphilis, yeah, syphilis. and cocaine use. So, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> this is not a perfect science here. Um, so, the one other person that's not on this list, I think, is uh, Ted Turner. He's been quite successful. And so, if you're bipolar, you get, especially if you're hypomanic and you're not quite over the top manic, you can get a lot done if you only need to sleep two hours a night. Well, what would the suicide rate be like if compared to bipolar and people with schizophrenia? It's high. Bipolar is high. I mean, it's between 5 and 10% of people with bipolar end their life by suicide. So not by cardiovascular disease or accident, but by suicide. Um, and 5%, I think, is probably the most common one that I see. But I've seen higher based on studies. And the most it's the same with most of these illnesses. The earlier on the illness, you're at higher risk. So you become manic, you feel wonderful, and then you realize, hey, I'm not 
the king of the world. I'm not going to save everybody. And I've just been put in a hospital. My friends don't hang out with anymore. I'm kind of weird. I'm ashamed of myself. And now I'm depressed because that often mania is often followed by depression. You're at a high risk for suicide. And the highest risk is right as you're at the peak of your mania and coming down. So you're, you're manic and things aren't so wonderful anymore. You're just not sleeping and you're irritable. You're at a high risk for suicide now. We do have a question, Niels, from the network. Um, Brian Carter, Rio Rancho PD, asks, given what you've listed, how likely is methamphetamine, methamphetamine use to be mistaken for bipolar disorder? Additionally, do people afflicted with bipolar disorder have a tendency to use meth over other drugs? Is Catherine Zeta-Jones also bipolar? It's she asked right. a lot of questions. I think yes she's to the Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah. I think she's one. I don't know. She was two. They said she's got maybe she's two. I don't know much about her. So that's to answer your first question, I think yes, she is. To answer your questions about methamphetamine, so it's a difficult diagnosis to tell apart, and generally the more collateral information or longitudinal information. So if I know somebody for the last ten years. And or at least know their history for the last 10 years, it's a lot easier to diagnose. Um, but fortunately, if someone comes in and they, they're acting manic and you do a drug screen and they're negative and they were negative the day before, you, you can at least partially rule out substance abuse, but they're still manic, so it puts mania way up higher on the list. But you can also be truly bipolar and also use substances, and then it gets more complicated. So it it, it, it's just like anything else, trying to tease those two apart is difficult, and you look for all the other things that go along with one and, and maybe not the other, like drugs laying around the house, or, uh, or a person admitting to using substances or denying using substances. All these things, you sort of take it into account. And, you, and there's a different feel, like people with, with meth might, are generally a little bit more paranoid, and their hallucinations will be more like tactile, or feel bugs, and see bugs on their skin, where people with bipolar is more that expansive feeling and everything making sense. So that's a great question and a, an entire lecture to itself. So the reason this is important is because it really is a heritable disease. It's, you know, psychiatry gets a lot of crap because we can't diagnose things with any um, tests. So there's no tests. There's, if you have... If you have um, any other illness, you, you run a test and you're like, oh, there your heart arteries are clogged, or look, your sugar is too high. It's You just do a test and then you get the diagnosis. With psychiatric illnesses, there are no tests. So um, one of the tests we do to prove that these things are real is to see that they run in families. And bipolar strongly runs in families. What's, proving that? What's first degree relative? First degree relative would be like a son, daughter, or brother, sister. So if your older brother became manic, your choices, your, your chances of becoming bipolar went from, you know, the 1% background to 5 10%. Does that make sense? And if you have an identical twin and you're 17 years old and they've just been admitted to the hospital for bipolar and they're full-on manic, you now have a 40 to 70% chance of becoming manic yourself. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we went over this. So mania can come in a lot of forms, sort of giddy, goofy, laughing fits, you know, explosive, irritable, grandiose, a lot of this kind of stuff. And then depression is the opposite. And it's more of just a review. Okay, this is kind of a nice um, picture. So 
everybody's moods, we don't live in a mono mood all the time, always. You know, our moods go up and down based on just, are we hungry? Are we not hungry? Did something good happen? Did something bad happen? Is it the beginning of the day, the end of the day? Everybody's moods fluctuate. And so that's normal. So there's good times and bad times in this. And most people stay somewhere in between. Someone who's hypomanic goes above normal good times. So they're at, their mood is elevated beyond what one would expect. And depression goes below the normal limit. And mania goes way up above what would be normal. So um, if, you're, if you imagine the best mood you could be in is a, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the best, most people think that they live around a 7 or 8 most of the time, and then it fluctuates. But people with mania would go up to a 10 and stay there for a week, which normal people really aren't capable of doing. Even if you win the lottery, your mood's going to come down. And you're going to have just kind of normal feelings for a little while. Lottery and cocaine. Lottery and cocaine might keep you up there for a while. Check Niels. Yes. A question. What is that say? Um, first says, when will Niels be doing that lecture? I'm not sure. Which one? And then he says, where would cyclothymic disorder fit? Oh, that's a great question. In this chart. <laughs> Cycle, you know, to me, cyclothymic kind of looks like this. If you look at the middle here, it would be, if you went up and down a little bit in the middle, that would be kind of normal. The one that they say is normal kind of looks cyclothymic. It goes really high, but not quite over the top, and really low, but not too low. So cyclothymic is, you don't quite reach the criteria for mania, but you kind of get up into the hypomania range, and you get depressed, but you don't get down to that major depression range. So your mood goes up, stays up for a while, comes down, stays down for a while. Sometimes it's in the middle. So you're kind of all over the place. Um, so you have bipolar, but not severe enough to be called bipolar. And not even severe enough to be called bipolar one. I mean, two. Does that make? Does that answer the question at all? It's a, it gets confusing. But the differences between these things because they're kind of arbitrary cutoffs between what makes someone cyclothymic and what cyclothymia is not a diagnosis I see very often because it doesn't have a lot of utility. Like you're not going to treat it really, and then people don't come in for treatment, so they're not distressed in any way. They're just. Kind of normal, but a little on the outskirts of normal. And then this is a very similar chart, except it, it tries to talk about um, on the far end that mixed state. So you can be all manic on the left, your mood is super high, or all depressed, super low. Or you can be hypomanic, which is the third one in, you're a little feeling good. But then you can also have these mixed states, which gets very complicated. And they're unfortunately pretty common especially as someone is going farther along in the progression of their illness or their manic episode. So a manic episode might start out as expansive, happy, wonderful, no need to sleep, everything's perfect, and then it progressively gets a little bit more mixed. And that's pretty typical um, unless you get treatment. Because what happens is people become manic, they feel wonderful, and then you know their body is like, I need to sleep. And then you get a little irritable, and also, you start, your plans start to get thwarted. So I'm writing the, the, the new version of the Bible, or I've gone online and discovered the new cure for everything, and you realize it's not really curing anything. And so you get a little irritable, and you can get short with people, and people aren't going along with you. They're not as excited to be around you as they used to be in the beginning, because it's very infectious. A good mood is very infectious. So you're around somebody, they're talking, they're laughing, they're just sort of, it just rubs off and it feels good, but eventually that runs down. 
So one way to look at mixed is, you know, is your mood up or down? So someone's manic. Is their mood good or bad? So you can be manic and have a low mood. And then you can be manic and and be have a lot of you can have a low mood and also be have a lot of that energy and activity and racing thoughts, and then um, that becomes more of a, a mixed mania. Or you could have a really good mood and, and but be irritable. Uh, sort of any mix and match you can get you can have with bipolar. So it gets very confusing and it's a very difficult diagnosis. We have a question from. Tim Moriarty. Sure. Does the manic depression cycle stay consistent based upon the individual? Uh, no. So I mean, it, it, I mean, it is with anything else. The the past is sort of prologue. So if you you for ten years have been having two or three manic episodes a year, odds are this year and next year you're probably gonna have two or three unless you get some kind of different treatment. So in that sense, yes, they're stable. But for any one individual at any one time, you just never know. You just never know, is this person going to start taking their medicine and really just turn a corner and never be manic again? Or um, is it just going to get progressively worse? Unfortunately, the, about a third of people just get worse and worse and have more and more frequent episodes. About a, and then the other two-thirds either get better or stay about the same. So, yes, you can sort of guess and predict but you never know in any one individual. It's not sort of cut and dry. So it would be one of them. And I, have to, I would just add that you know, for the majority of people, they spend their they spend an entire lifetime in depression and the mania. That's why it not only feels so good, but it feels so different from where they usually kind of live in terms of their mood. Um, so yes, yeah, so you, you see this. Although we're talking about mania and depression as being a component of this illness, it's it's the majority of time spent in depression. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Because mania is not sustainable. I mean, depression, you can be depressed for a long time and survive. Mania, you just can't. I mean, you're going to either spend all your money or you're going to die. I mean, people used to die from mania. So if someone is manic and that they have nothing else but really bad mania, that's enough to get them in the hospital, even if they're not doing anything overtly dangerous. Because it's just assumed that it leads to dangerous behavior. Or if untreated, people can get infections. They can just die. Okay, so manic conversations. So working with someone who might be uh, manic. So these are just reviews of things that you guys already know and do, but it's always good to hear. So one of the main things is if you're working with someone who appears to be manic, and it's kind of like exactly what you described, check in on yourself first because it's going to affect you. you know, it's, it can be exhausting. You're like, what is happening? Or it can make you agitated or angry. Like, this person keeps interrupting me. What the fuck is wrong with them? And, and, and so it's good to know what you're feeling because you have uh, somewhat have control over your own feelings and reactions. You should at least have insight to them, say, like, I know I'm getting angry and I don't want to act on that anger irresponsibly. Um, you want to be able to say, okay, I'm angry. Why am I angry? And think it through and not act. Um, so just you, to try to control the other person's anger is like impossible. So if you have a little bit of control over yours, that's great. Um, and mania is true mania, so the old ha ha he he mania is very infectious. And you'll you'll kind of know when you feel it. Someone's like so happy and they say, How wonderful you are, and you're the greatest cop ever, and why aren't all the cops like you? And this is so great. And do you want to look at this? Do you want to look at that? And they talk and talk and talk. And then you start to feel kind of manic. It kind of it rubs off on people. 
Well, I must deal with a lot of manic. <laughs> Maybe you're the manic. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an infectious feeling, and it's good to be polite. And eventually you might laugh at something they say or smile, and you think, oh, my God, you're going to piss them off. And it's okay. It's okay to laugh and, and smile and just say, oh, you know, and even say your mood is infectious. You seem like you're in such a good mood. Um, People can be very distractible, hearts pinned down, that's that ADHD component, like, they stay on target, and you can do that, and it's okay. If someone who's distractible, if they've been distractible their whole life, they're used to people interrupting them, keeping them on task, so they're not going to be too upset. And if it's somebody new and they've never had that before, they need to be redirected or you're going to waste your time. I mean, give them at least a few minutes, five minutes, if you can stand it, to ramble and ramble and ramble, and then start to re redirect them, and if normal redirection doesn't work, then say, hey, you know, my time is limited. I really want to make the most of our time. Please answer this one question, yes or no. And then ask it. If they're able to answer yes or no, great. If they don't, you say, you know, we got off subject again. I really need you to answer this one question, yes or no. And I do that with patients. Did you sleep more than eight hours last night? Yes or no? Oh, no, 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 no. Then like, okay, great. You know, at least I have something to hang my hat on. And so whatever question you're trying to get an answer to, Ask it and ask it until you get an answer. Um, they may frustrate you, but they can also be very, very sharp and perceptive. So if you, they, if you roll your eyes or you get short or you kind of look at your watch, they might pick up on that very, very quickly. Because they're not, they're often more intelligent than average people, and they're also very perceptive as long as they're not too far gone. They might seem completely out of it, but they can pick up on things that might surprise you. And so if they're manic, you try to be more calm. Okay, so again, this is just a thing you can use. Help me understand more about X, Y, and Z. Help me more understand about why you have this big pile of stuff here. You know, are you worried that it might fall on you? Um, they can be unpredictable. Try not to get yourself too revved up first, and try not to rev them up. If there's a certain subject, obviously, you know, the hooks and triggers, if there's something revving them up, try to avoid that. Um, and don't ignore medical complaints. This is very important, even if they're psychotic, or things that might sound like medical complaints. And this doesn't happen very often, but it happens, and if you miss it, you're be kicking yourself. Oh my gosh, you know, the neighbors are out to get me, and they keep hitting me with this laser beam, and I get these terrible chest pains when they hit me. That's enough to get somebody into the hospital. They're like, oh, chest pains. You're going to the hospital. Right? But you don't think about it. If, if it was just an elderly lady and they called about chest pains, you wouldn't hesitate for a second. Call ambulance, get them to the hospital. But someone's having chest pain, that's a reason to get them to the hospital. Take them to the medical hospital, and then they can transfer them to a psychiatric um, Okay. So we've gone over this before. But with psychotic symptoms, you, know, you don't have to agree with them and don't dismiss them either. The easiest way to do it is to investigate them. So the example here is there's a monkey in the hallway. Huh, there's a monkey in the hallway. Let's go look. You know, and I don't see the monkey. And either they'll say, I see it, it's right there, and then they're having visual hallucinations. Or, oh, it was just here yesterday. Oh, it was here yesterday? Or are there did it poop? Are there any signs? Honestly, you build a rapport that way, as opposed to, oh, this is stupid. I'm not going to waste my time on it. This is their main concern. This is why they called the police, because of a monkey in the house. Investigate. You know, you get so much information as you investigate it that you might easily discover that, hey, this person's pooping on the floor, or this person bought a, a gun to shoot the monkey. Um, so the more you sort of 
go on their side without believing it. Like, I absolutely believe there's a monkey in the house, and we're going to get the monkey police. Question out. for me. Yes. So let's say there's a guy on the side of the road, and he's fighting with a snake. <laughs> and, 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 and you want to empathize with them emotionally, and you say, well, I can see that snake's really bothering me, although I don't see that snake. Yeah. Is that right? Just kind of take it away from him and put it in the road. Say that. You think that's okay? I think that. I think it. I mean, I'm just asking. This question. is a good question, and I think it's a, a good question. I think this is a, actually a fantastic question, and I think it's an important question because it comes up a lot, and people don't ask it enough. Because what happens is, I think those things work really well in the short term. So if there's no, nothing else you can do, and it's a sort of life or death situation, and if you don't wrestle that snake, they're going to go into the street and die, okay, I can see you making a case for it, and it's reasonable. But the problem with those things is, oh, you know, there's a snake, and then you say, okay, oh, all right, I'm going to wrestle. And there's, let's say there's no immediate danger. I'm going to wrestle, and then you throw it aside, and then you step on it, and they think, oh, thank you, you killed it. Take them to the hospital. Next week, they're going to call. Snake's after me. The other cops are going to come, and they're not going to intervene. They're going to say, well, the buck did it. They're going to call for you, and every time they're going to expect the cops to de-snake them, and they believe well, it. Everybody can wrestle a snake. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it leads to buying into the delusions, and that's their expectation, and that's how it can be dangerous. Can I say something? I think in those, in those cases, it's better to validate their fear. Yes. Wow, that would be so scary. If I saw a snake there, I would be just as scared as you. I don't see that. I'm really worried. I'm concerned for you now. Because I don't want you to have to live through all this fear. I don't want you to have to do this. Why don't you let me go get you help? That way you're validating their emotion and their fear and not that the snake is there. Absolutely. I think that's, and with this, I should have put that in here. With the, the monkey in the hallway, you, you can say, gosh, that must be so weird, a monkey in your hallway. What do you think of that? And you can get a lot of information. Oh, it's my, what if they say my sister has a monkey and it was actually here. And then you call the sister and like, yeah, the monkey was there. It's possible. Um, but you can get a lot of information and you can get a lot of uh, rapport by going along emotionally. Empathize. I do have it. It's right there. <laughs> Empathize emotionally with, the, with the, the feeling. Gosh, that must be scary to see a snake. It must be awful to have that. You must be worried. And it gets people on your side. Um, okay. So manic mixed conversation. So why I'm making a distinction here is because people who are in the mixed state are more likely to get annoyed, frustrated, confused, um, irritable. So they might snap back at you, um, and it might just drop on a dime. You might hit that wrong thing, and like you, you thought this person was all happy and giggles, and now all of a sudden they're angry at you. And so that's sort of the the, uh, the the mixed part to just be prepared for. And again, it's about getting on the same page. Help me understand why we were here. You know, you told me about you know, your plans to change the internet and your plans to booby trap or whatever. Why am I here? How can I help you? So keep them on track. Um, hooks and triggers are so important all the time, but especially with people with mixed mania. Because they they can drop on a they can really turn very quickly, um, and try to avoid pointless conversations just because you're interested or just because you don't want to interrupt. They just go on and on, and you can say, you know, I, I want to remind you we're here because of X, Y, and Z, and I really want to make the most of our time together. And let's get back to that. So 
especially if it, it's nice to establish rapport like oh you like this and i like that yes and then, but if you're talking about a half hour later it's probably not the best thing to continue to talk about because people with mania they'll talk about their favorite subject all day okay um depression so again look for hooks and triggers try to draw them out uh, make yourself clear speak slowly and this is true of everybody don't give multiple commands at once don't say do this then this then this ask one thing be patient wait for an answer so with with mixed mania mania the hooks are going to set somebody off they might yell at you but with I mean, uh, with a hook in mania, they might just stay on that forever, and you're going to have to try to get them off. With with depression, you really sometimes have to draw somebody out. Well, tell me about your daughter, your dog, your something to just get them to talk. Okay, so there's a lot of different treatment options, and really, ideally, you want to do everything. I don't know why medications this is in the center of this. It really shouldn't be. It's just one of the many things that is used to help people with uh, bipolar. So we prioritize symptoms, and this is why the case was interesting. Because if it's if if this person is manic, that's that's you know that's as close to a psychiatric emergency as we get. And so those are the kind of people that we want the hospital to treat. So if someone's clearly manic, people at the hospital that's the kind of patients they want to see and they want to help. Um, and then after that, depression and anxiety are the ones that you treat next. So there's a lots of different medications, mood stabilizers. Lithium is the still the gold standard by which all others are, are rated. And then antipsychotics. I'm sure you guys have heard a lot of these medicines. Olanzapine, Zyprexis, Seroquel, Quetiapine. So the, one is Quetiapine, one is Seroquel. They're exactly the same. One is generic and one is a brand name. Same with Olanzapine and Zyprexis. They're all good medicines. Quick, quick question yeah. on the Quetiapine. If somebody has a sleeping disorder, would they take that as well? Like they might. Could they, sleep some doctors day? prescribe it for sleep because it helps people with anxiety, and then the anxiety helps people. It gets it gets prescribed off label a lot. Like okay. a low dose of Seroquel is used for a lot of different things: anxiety, sleep. Okay. I have a question. Also. Yeah. What are are you going to talk about side effects of some of these? I can if you want. Oh, I'm just curious. Sure. Okay. So these are all antipsychotics. I don't have a specific slide. Okay. So these are all antipsychotics. So Zyprex is a nice one to talk about in terms of side effects because most of them have a side effect except for maybe a vilify to some degree, making you sleepy, so tired, sedated. So they often are used for you know, helping people relax and go to sleep. But for, they all also have movement disorder side effects, not as much as the old ones, but the most common side effect for all of these is what's called akathisia. So akathisia is a feeling of restlessness. So uh, the best way I can describe it is I'm sure everybody at some point has seen a restless leg syndrome advertisement like, uh, and think, gosh, I have. I, I can't keep still, and I just have to move my muscles. And that's the feeling of restless leg syndrome. And akathisia is kind of like that while you're awake. So you just have to keep moving your muscles. You rock back and forth. You pace. You, you, you tap on the table. You do all sorts of stuff. And it can be a very... Uh, unsettling feeling, but it's a feeling of restlessness and having to move your muscles. And that's the most common side effect, and I see it a lot. And so you, the, the trick is, someone gets a side effect, do you then treat the side effect, or do you switch medications? And that's where the art of, of medicine comes in. 
Olanzapine is interesting because one of the things it is notorious for, it's one of the better antipsychotics in terms of efficacy, but it causes a lot of weight gain. And even when it doesn't cause weight gain, it can cause a lot of uh, what's called mel- metabolic syndrome stuff. So diabetes, high cholesterol, that kind of stuff, and which can lead to heart attacks. And so Zyprexa didn't, had this information, the company now, had this information, but kind of didn't tell people about it. And so they were sued. I think they lost like a few hundred million dollars in a lawsuit. But compared to what they made and what they continued to make, it was like paying a parking lot. And so that's the other major concern with these are, are uh, metabolic syndromes and early death. Oh, okay. Where did that come from? Did they do something? I don't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> you see something? <laughs> so, oh my God, it's a snake! <laughs> Kill it to the ground. Kill it. lost. So, the the to really treat bipolar most effectively, get everybody on board. Everybody who's involved, family, friends. You do education, support. You, I mean, if you did all of these things, you may not even need as much medication, if any. I mean, it is a very strongly biological illness, so medicine has a very good place. But medicines only work if people take it, and if they are able to talk openly about why they do or do not take the medicine. So there's a lot. Medicine is just one piece of a very big puzzle to intervene with people with mental illness. And that's it. Oh. Are there any questions or thoughts? Good sleep hygiene. Like, the, they go to bed clean? Does it say good sleep hygiene on there? Yeah. Yeah. So good sleep hygiene is a, is a good one to end up since we started on sleep. So sleep hygiene means cleanliness of sleep, yes. But it, what it really means is techniques to so that you only use the bed for sleep and that you don't, you know, you try to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time. So if you have trouble sleeping, the first intervention is sleep hygiene and cognitive behavioral therapy, but the basic ones are nice dark room, a nice dark cool room is probably the best intervention you can do for sleep. If your room it gets light too early or stays light too long, you leave the lights on, you know, you, you can put tinfoil on the windows if you need to, it just works. The, the body has those circadian rhythms based on light, and we flood our, I don't know if people go camping, but you go camping, within two days you're sleeping like a baby. It's because yeah. you don't turn on the lights and you're not on your phone with light shining in your eye until midnight or you're not checking email at midnight. You just can't do it. So you, your body just kicks in and you sleep better. So turn off the TVs, turn off all your lights as early in the day as you can and you're going to sleep better at night. Um, and then darken your room so you don't wake up too early. The next is cool. So there's also a circadian rhythm based on temperature. So um, if you're in a Cool room, you'll sleep better. You'll fall asleep faster. So it's good to be able to err on the side of cold when you're sleeping. Wear socks if you need to. Uh, your body will read that as okay. It's evening. It's time to go to sleep. So these are you know ancient things that have been in our body for a long, long time. So those are the two easiest interventions. The next is go to bed and wake up at the same time. That one's harder, but do it even during the weekend. And then the next is. It's hard. It's really hard. Kids, kids, don't have kids. kids. That's probably the best intervention for sleep. Don't have children. Um, or give your children away if you have them. So um, the next would be, um, you know, use the, 
Use the bed only for sleep, so don't watch TV and don't read in it. Sleep and sex. So this one I have a hard time following, but it's it's sort of an important one to make associations with the bed. Yeah, which one? Sleep yeah. or sex? And then, uh, and then the other one is if you can't sleep, and this is another one I have difficulty with, and some researchers have difficulty with. If you can't sleep, don't stay in bed. Get out of bed and do something boring. And I think one of the biggest problems with that is when they ask people to rate their sleep, they're very bad at it. So, like, if you go to a sleep lab and they put electrodes all, all on you and you do that every night for a week and you tell them how much you've been sleeping every night, you could be way off. So there are cases of people saying, I sleep like a half hour a night. They put them in the sleep thing and they're like, yeah, just slept eight hours. So people are notoriously really bad at knowing when they're sleeping. And I'm sure that's happened. I know it's happened to me. Someone nudges you or you wake up suddenly and you, you don't think you were sleeping. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm awake. But no, no, you were snoring. Like, okay. So people are very bad at gauging when they're asleep. So I think if you're really certain you're awake and can't go to sleep, get out of bed and do something boring and go back to sleep. And don't clock watch. Don't be like, oh, it's, it's 2 in the morning and now I only have 4 hours and do all the math in your head and worry, worry. The less you look at your clock, the better so those are all sleep hygiene. So I just talked to you. Thank you. So if you're bipolar, you really ought to follow it. So that's a good question. Thank you. Other questions? We have like two minutes. Um, Dr. Hatfield commented there is a really good CBT insomnia app where you can do a sleep log and goes over these techniques. Yeah, the VA put it out and it's free. Yeah, it's good. I was just looking at that the other day. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. So if anybody's interested in CBT or insomnia, if you have trouble with insomnia or you know somebody like your partner has trouble with insomnia, just go to the app store and do CBTI and, or, and then type in insomnia and it'll pop up. It's by the VA. And then Officer Philip Olivas, I believe, says, is there a relationship with children being medicated and developing disorders later in life based on that early treatment? I think the only relationship that I could think of is they're getting treated for something so they most likely have it so that they, they, they get it later. I don't think there's any, if there's any evidence, it's that treatment will reduce the likelihood of you having a, a major mental illness later in life. So if you're being treated early for psychotic illnesses, the sooner they catch it, the less likely you are to have it. So if anything, it's reversed. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs>